On this episode, I'm in the room with Justin McRoberts discussing the creative process. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 10. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ryanhughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to In the Room, the concept is simple. I want to bring you into the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. We all have something we can learn from everyone, so regardless of the guest or the subject matter, I hope that you're going to find this helpful. This week, I'm in the room with Justin McRoberts. He's a songwriter, author, and pastor. He recently wrote a great new book on his creative process that he called Title Pending, Things I Think About When I Make Stuff. In our conversation, we discuss the pros and cons of being an independent artist, how to turn failure into fruitfulness, and why so much Christian art sucks. Justin is one of the most fun people I've had a conversation with, so settle in and come into the room for my conversation with Justin McRoberts. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Justin. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. For people that may not uh, know uh, your whole story, can you just give me a little of the cliff notes on your background and where you're from originally and uh, how you've gotten to where you are now? Sure. Well, working backwards, I'm an author, speaker, singer, songwriter, uh, and a pastor, and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born and raised here. I was born in Oakland. grew up in a town called Concord, which is about 20 minutes from Oakland. Okay. And uh, started following Jesus at 18 through uh, Young Life and followed my Young Life leader on to Young Life staff, served Young Life for four and a half years on staff. During that time, developed a, a pattern of creativity. Uh, it was like journey, journaling and storytelling and songwriting. And then really kind of everything has grown from that point where I was... I was a person in relationship to intentional relationship with other people, uh, peers and young adults and high school students. And I was trying to find ways to not only tell the story of the kingdom of Jesus, but also help folks see their own stories. Uh-huh. And I would do that as a, as a, you know, as a young life, uh, leader telling, uh, young life stories. I would do that as a, as a musician and then eventually do that as a, as a sermon speaking pastor and now as an author. So I've kind of, in some ways I've been really doing the same thing since about 1993. Okay. It's just taken a lot of different forms and grown and kind of evolved. Yeah. So I, I still do the same thing I've always done. I, I, I try to coach and lead and pastor the people that I'm given to. And as part of that expression, I, I write songs uh, and tell stories and uh, try to connect with people through the arts. Well, I gotta, I gotta air something a little, a little personal hurt. I met you uh, uh, when I was 18 years old. Uh-oh. At uh, yeah, this is this is gonna be fun. 18 <laughs> years old, I met you at the Sunshine Music Festival in Minnesota. Yes. And uh, so I think you were touring like your first record at that time. Yeah. And so yep. I came up and I gave you this little demo of like five songs that I'd written, and I had really high hopes of us like touring around the nation together. And I, I, I just, I never heard anything from you. And so I was just wondering like, what's up with that i love that record and so <laughs> i uh I, I, it's it's been on repeat uh it's I such it's uh, honestly dude it's such a piece of crap i'm surprised that you would even do the podcast now it was so bad <laughs> that's amazing uh so that's anyways so Sunshine so, Fest, that is way back man that's it is that's a good memory you've got there yeah that's really good so are you uh are you a completely independent artist like are you even i know that you, you self-published the new book title pending correct yep yes, and then are you are you on a record label anymore or is everything oh. that you're doing completely independent we are completely independent. For, so from uh, when, when I started playing music around 1998, I was with Five Minute Walk Records run uh-huh. by a good friend of mine named Frank Tate, who's still a good friend and a mentor. And when Five Minute Walk closed its doors, a couple things happened. One was that uh, everything happened with Five Minute Walk in-house. It was a truly indie label. So artwork, uh, music production, booking, everything happened with a pretty small group of people. And what it trained Amy and I, who's my wife, uh, uh-huh. to do is that we actually knew how to do everything when Five Minute Walk closes doors. And so uh, for, I guess, ab- about a year and a half or two years after that, we worked with a booking agency. Uh, and and then we realized that we were paying someone 15, 15% of what we were making yeah. to, to do something that we actually could just spend our own time to do. And so since... 
about 2002, uh, everything's happened in house. So yeah. it's pretty much been my wife and I doing everything and, uh, and the world has turned that way too. It's just, yeah, it's, there's, there's a, there's a growing number of people I know that are going that direction and it's becoming more accessible with, you know, technology and all that. But I was wondering if you could speak to, I know that being an independent artist has to come with both advantages and challenges. And so I was wondering if you could, for people that are, that are headed that direction or in that, can you speak a little bit to the advantages and challenges of being a completely independent creator and artist? Sure. So challenges, uh, the biggest one being, uh, self-discipline. I mean, ultimately this being able to set your own schedule. I mean, the idea like, Hey, set your own schedule in terms of release or tour or whatever. It's kind of this magical, wonderful, neat idea. Yeah. But the reality of it is that, in my life, if I don't, if I'm not moving the pieces on the board, nothing is moving. Right. So that means I, I, I like treating what I have as a job. It, it's a job. It is, is this yep. thing that, that God's given me to do. It's a gift. It's a gift I get to offer the world. It's a, it, it's a ministry in so many ways. It's art, but my approach to it has to be as, uh, as a, this is a job. This is the work I have to do. And if I'm not self-disciplined, which is just, of the things to learn to be, humility might be easier than learning to be self-disciplined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to actually t to say to yourself, get out of bed at 6 a.m. Uh, and go to bed at 9 so that you can have a full work day. To actually to do that, that's the hardest part, I would okay. suggest, of, of being an independent artist is that becoming your own boss, having to be hard on yourself and and... Uh, be and be disciplined about your own uh, about your own practice is the hardest thing. The I mean, all the the upsides are somewhat obvious. That when something is finished and released into the world, um, two things are true. One is you, you are tied to that thing in, like entirely. You're like when you release something to the world and people are are affected by it. Uh, there's a there's a depth of of pride and joy that comes from having built something from the ground up. Um, that's got your name written all over it. The people are blessed by it. There's just like, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. More, more importantly that than that for me is that every aspect of what I do is relational. So whether it's, uh, you know, a college chaplain or, uh, or the students on campus, I'm the person in relationship with everyone from the word, are you interested to the word? Thanks for coming. Right. And so, it allows me to be in a position in which I can, I'm not just the, uh, I'm not just the quote talent or whatever. I'm it's, I'm actually in relationship with people creating situations and spaces in which folks are seeing God more clearly and seeing their lives more clearly. And it's a kind of, a, it's, it's a more whole, this is a terrible word because everyone uses it now, yeah. but it's, it's a more holistic sure. experience of life as opposed to here's my schedule that someone handed me. And I don't know how these relationships developed and so I'm going to go in kind of half blind as to what this is about or what they need from sure. me. I know all that stuff going in and I know histories about, I'd say 60, 65% of what I do in a year is that I go back to places I've been, uh, over and over. I'll be at Malone college again this year. And this is the 12th year wow. uh, of the last 15 that I've been at Malone college. It's a, it's a relationship that I've got with the, not just the kids on the campus, but with faculty, with staff, with, with campus ministers. And that's an opportunity that folks who aren't independent artists don't have quite as often. Sure. And I think that, you know, for many people that aspire, especially on the, on the music side of what you do, the, the touring, the recording, all that is the really sexy stuff that everybody wants. And they don't really see the hard work that you're talking about that's behind it. So as an independent artist, you're in control of everything. What does, I mean, it might change based on the, the project that you're working on, but what does day-to-day -day work look like for you? The, the sort of, you approach it like a nine to five type of job. What is, what does day-to-day life look for you, look like for you? So, um, that changes all the time. And, and, and as the, as the, 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 which the, actually this comes back to maybe another advantage of being an independent artist is the flexibility, yeah. uh, it, the kind of the lateral movement, the freedom of lateral movement. I get to reinvent the model that I'm working within just about any time I want or need to. And so, uh, day-to-day -day work, uh, changes with the, the changing landscape of, 
uh, of like, my vocation. Right now, the way it looks, it, it, really, really, uh, this week, I'll give you is maybe yeah. a really good example. So on Sunday, uh, I taught at my home church where I'm on part-time staff as a teaching pastor, associate pastor. Okay. I also led. I also led songs, so it was a little bit, kind of an odd little transition. Yeah, I've done that. And, that's that's difficult. And now we're bringing the band up, and yeah. that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I led songs and taught uh, at my service on Sunday night. Um, Monday was a uh, was like a details day. I was on sabbatical from uh, from October first through December. And so I've got, I came back to a solid like couple hundred ish emails that I needed to dive into. And so Monday was like a, a minutia day where I was sifting through and figuring out what's like, uh, you know, what's important. How do I prioritize this? Who do I respond to first? Yep. Uh, Tuesday morning, I had a staff meeting with, uh, with the folks at my church. And then after that, I do all of my, my, our church is called Shelter Covenant Church. I do all my Shelter Covenant grunt work. Okay. Because uh, I just came out of the meeting and I know what's important in relationship to shelter. Wednesday, I pick up on all of that creative, uh, all the creative kind of artsy world minutia that I was wrestling through on Monday. And I sit down with my wife and we strategize a plan, uh, not only like a, a booking plan, but also some laying out my year, like what what projects are we going to try to finish by what date? Um. And then yesterday uh, was uh, the, actually the first day, <laughs> first day of this week that I've, I've actually had space and creative time to make. And so in the morning, I woke up, which I try to do every morning. I try, I'm trying to be up between six and six thirty, okay, so that I can so I can pray and read and and have a like a a sense of connection with the Lord before I actually dive into my day. Um, and then uh, spend some time writing for whatever for whatever the next project is and I don't know exactly what it'll look like. Yeah. Spent, spent some time writing until uh this this is today until uh it was time to send my wife off to work because she works across town. Okay. At that point it was right around nine thirty and she, uh, she headed off to work and then I wrestled with my son for about an hour. He's four. Yep. And that was an important part of the work day is Absolutely. wrestling and making sure he understands that I'm I'm still physically dominant. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's an important part of the establishment of my identity. I, I saw, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I took him to school and drove home and uh, I'm here with you. And my, my weeks often look a little bit like that where I okay. have, there's a day where I get to sift through the details, all the sand that kind of comes in. Um, but then I've got the actual times, uh, uh, whether it's the, you know, Tuesday, Thursday mornings, usually that I've got blocked out for, creative time after I've sifted through my minutia. Well, your new book uh, is called Title Pending. When did that release? That was out in November of last year. So okay. a few, a couple months ago. 2014. And it's all about your creative process. And so clearly the creative process is a combination of lots of hard work, but also inspiration. And, and anybody who creates anything knows that feeling of having inspiration really run dry. Yes. And so I, I'm wondering just <clears throat> in the midst of having a very sort of a nine to five approach to your job. Like you, you think about it as a job and you've, you're yes. actually juggling like what for most people would be like four or five different vocations. How do you position yourself for inspiration and try to keep that fresh? Well, I, I read a lot and listen to music and pay attention to art that I can't make. So, um, I'm not, a, you know, I'm learning to be an author. I'm not a great author. And so right now still I'll read books and be mostly moved and inspired uh, being in the position which I'm listening to or pay attention to art that is beyond my ability to make is still really deeply inspiring. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an, I'm an artist. I guess this is probably true of almost any vocation, but I'm an artist. I'm a musician specifically. We'll put it in that context because I fell in love with music as a kid. Okay. Like I loved music. I was a fan first. And because I love music, I wanted to learn how to make it. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about, about our relationship to beauty. And it's not just that we want to admire beauty from a distance and say, hey, that's really neat. We actually want to become that. Uh -huh. There's something in us that wants to become beautiful. And so I fell in love with art. I was moved by art as a kid. And I wanted to learn how to do that. And that still has to be the driving force of my artistic endeavors 
is that I, I'm in a place where I'm moved by the things that I'm seeing and reading. And so I, I'm, I'm constantly on the search for stuff that moves me and stuff that I know that I can't do. Some of that means uh, a few nights ago, uh, a good friend of mine named Eric Ely, who's a, a brilliant, brilliant artist, had a show. Uh, he, he does this fascinating kind of urban taxidermy hand-building thing with animals, et cetera. It's, it's, I'm not describing it very well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's called, uh, wild west side. You can go okay. to wildwestside.com and, he, uh, his, I, I can't do what he does, Yeah, but I'm, I'm moved by it. And so be, because I'm moved by it, I'm inspired and that sends me off into, uh, you know, into kind of ideas the, you know, the idea generation, idea generation phase of, of the creative process Yeah, from there. That's where the self-discipline part comes in. Because I'm always going to have ideas. I'm always going to have a, I don't think inspiration is almost ever the problem with really anybody. Okay. I think there's almost always inspiration. The two things that end up happening, one, we don't have a place to put that inspiration yep. for the time being. Like either we do something about it right now or we forget about it. And so having a, having a notebook or, have, or keeping a, some sort of a organizational system on my phone, having a way to capture that moment uh, even though I can't do anything about it right, in the, right now, that's the first thing that needs to happen. And then the second thing is I've got to have designated time somewhere that I'm going to do something about my inspirations. Yeah, that's good. Um, I don't think folks go without inspiration. I think we forget about it. Uh, I think we lose it because we're not disciplined. Yeah. No, I think that that's a great point. I think um, any everyone has uh, that creates anything has experienced capturing the inspiration, trying to take action against it and failing. And I, yes. I, I like the way that you uh, talked honestly about failure, I thought was yeah. really, really helpful in the book. You have this great line where you say, uh, quote, it's not always in spite of your failures that, that you will grow as an artist, but in many cases it is because of them. You yes. have to make bad or art in order to make good art. And that's end quote. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of people that for them failure is fatal right? Like it's just the end for them. They quit because they fail the first time or because it's more difficult than they thought. So what do you think are some keys to harnessing failure as a means to fruitfulness? Cause you talk about that being like failure being part of the process, but how do you keep that from sort of, um, just exploding on itself and, and ruining whatever, like, so how can we make failure, uh, be a, a part of us becoming fruitful as creatives? So the, the, this is a newer, I guess, Kairos or revelation for me in that um, as I've, it was actually, I, I was able to clarify these thoughts as I was writing the book, which is part of why I write books. Sure. And, and is I'm actually seeing myself more clearly as I do it. So I'm less afraid of my failure and, or my weak spots or my shortcomings if and when I can see them in the context of my strengths. In other words, if I'm constantly entering into my my life, whether it's as a pastor or as a, any part of my vocation through the things I'm bad at, I'm going to stop at the front door and I don't want to go in that room. Yeah. But if I can frame that, if I can see here, here are actually my strengths. I'm as an example, I'm a far better lyricist than I am a guitar player. Okay. And beca because I know that I I'm actually less afraid of the things I need to do and the ways I need to grow as an instrumentalist because I know my strength. So my strength gives context to my weakness. Coming to that realization, the two things have to happen. One is, uh, well, I'll, I'll sit, actually the one we'll hang on right now is um, having some folks, a really small group of people around me who can, especially early, early on before, uh, you know, before I'm releasing anything in the world on a professional level, who can listen to what I'm doing and read what I'm doing and and you know, folks who I trust who can see what I'm doing and find what's what's good about it, yeah, and speak that back to me, um, so that I can hear from someone else. Not only that, like, hey, there's there's an upside to this, like, I, it's, this is worth investing in, but also there's someone else's eyes. There's someone else who can they'll see things that I'm doing that that I'm I'm not going to be able to see, yeah. Uh, and so that's. So I got to that place uh, of being able to see my weaknesses in context of my strengths. And, and this, is, this is probably not the best way to say this, but early, especially early on, early on, I had just enough ego 
uh-huh. um, to put myself out there and not care and not in the right way, but not care so much what other people thought. Sure. I mean, like we can pretend like that's a value in an artist and it's not really long-term, right. but initially for me to have had enough ego and to not really care about people's criticisms allowed me to go out and just put my stuff out there. And I, I felt, I felt good about it and allowed me to fail uh, and, and like o- over the course of time, see like, oh, okay, this, this is the weakness. This is the weakness. This is the weakness. But only because I had the ego to push through the failure cycle. Sure. For a lot of folks, like who just, they're far more humble and wise people than I was when I got started. They're a little bit more cautious about their failures. They're, they're, they're not as overly confident about what they have to offer the world. Uh, and they're going to need someone to say, hey, no, you're, you're not that great at the, at X and Y, but man, your Z is fantastic. Yeah. And so it, it makes me want to work on my X and my Y because I want to, because I want to highlight that Z. Does that make a little bit of sense? Oh, it totally does. Yeah, absolutely. I so mean, knowing, even in, knowing yeah. that my, knowing that my weaknesses are framed by a strength, it makes it worth it because the flip side of this is, to it is this. And is again, this a really bad example is like, I'm, I'm, I'm five, six, I'm 41. Uh, if I, if I really wanted to, to play basketball, um, I would go out and find a pretty long laundry list of weaknesses and shortcomings and it, and what you're going to do anytime you try to do anything new. Yep. But w- the thing that would be missing would be that great big strength. Like, yeah, it's worth working on these, these weaknesses because here's your great strength in basketball. Yeah. <laughs> because the reality is like, I just don't have one. There is no, <laughs> yeah. there's just, there's no strength in my ball game yep. as a ball player that makes me want to, or, or justifies the work I'd have to put in to get better at the things I'm bad at. Maybe that's a better example. Totally. No, 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 that's helpful. And I, I do, I think it's, Obviously you always want, we're going to, I want to talk to you about feedback and critique and we need that for sure. But, but having a, especially early on when something's in its infancy stage, I'm really careful about who I share fresh ideas with because, you know, they're just very fragile early on. And if the wrong person gets a hold of it, they can kill it. And, um, so like my mom, my mom is the best person to call with a new idea because she thinks everything I do, no matter how crappy is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, so I think that's (laughs) keeping that, that circle small, but having people that encourage you, you know, in the midst of that infancy stage can be so discouraging. So I think that's super helpful. Yeah, very much so. Um, so closely related, though, to this issue of failure, for many people anyways, is uh, the whole feedback and critique thing. And uh, and you mentioned a type of creative in your book who has really no interest necessarily in improving their craft, only being right. affirmed in it, which I just yes. thought was an exceptional way to say that. Yeah. And, uh, and so one of the things that, you know, we say at redemption at our church, we, I try to, you know, our team and our people like feedback isn't failure. It's just feedback. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes. but for many people, feedback is very, we, we've seen this, whether it be coaching a volunteer on, you know, one of our missional teams, whatever it might be, many people just are not accustomed to receiving feedback anymore. Yeah. And so whether you're creative or not, but what are some practical ways that you think that we can be better at receiving feedback and critique? I think most of it has had to do, and this is my learning curve. Most of it has had to do with, uh, expectations and setup. So what is it that I'm actually asking someone to say or do or, or hear or see? So in other words, um, if I hand you a disc Let's say I don't know you're an 18 year old kid at a show. Uh, <laughs> maybe like a maybe festival. yeah maybe in Minnesota. <laughs> maybe whatever. In Minnesota. Yeah. Let's just say yeah. And you hand someone a disc, and you just say either nothing or you say uh, like, "Hey, let me know what you think." I yep. mean, I, we've all done that. Sure. 99% of the time, if I say that, r- what I really want is I just want someone to tell me it's good. Totally. That's what I'm at. That's what I'm, that's, that's what I want. If I say, Hey, let me know what you think. I, I'm wanting them to say, oh, I think you're great and you should keep doing this. Yep. As opposed to if I'm, if I, if, I, if I'm serious about not just being affirmed, but in, in improving in my craft, I, I need to ask specific questions and give permission. And that's part of the setup to the person I'm asking. So I would hand something over and say, let me know what works in this yep. and let me know what doesn't work for you. Yep. Which gives them permission to say, to, to say both things. Hey, this really worked for me. I really like this. These things didn't work for me because they can personalize it and not make it about me. Hey, you suck at these things. Yep. It's not about that. It's like, Hey, this did not work for me. This did work for me. Right. So one of it, it's that's the, so expectation setup. 
the wiser and more familiar I am with my own work, then the more detailed I can be about this question. So from about 2003 on, I recognize that I don't like, and I struggle with writing bridges in songs. Okay. It's I, I, I can, I can find a nice hooky chorus to some degree. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with verse structure but man, I would just come around to like the need for a bridge and I, and I just, it was hard. And so yeah. what I learned to do is when I would hand something over to someone, I would say specifically what, like when you come to these bridge, come to the bridges in this song, do the bridges work? And if not, like, like how am I missing? Like, what is it? Where does it sound like I should have gone? Yeah. And then I would get specific feedback about the specific thing I, I'm, I'm, I, I know that I'm weak in which again is asking, I'm, I'm granting them permission. So I think being specific, at, uh, granting permission and, and setting it up as, as something, uh, setting the other person up to actually give critique as opposed to just affirm you. Yeah, totally. I think I, there's a huge piece in the identity thing too. I think that so many, and I think it's really hard when you, when you create something, there is always going to be some amount of your identity that's bound up in that thing because it's a yes. part of you. But I th don't you think that that's probably, that's something definitely to keep an eye on and keep in check if all your identity is wrapped up in your ability to perform and to produce, then any criticism or feedback of that theme that of that thing that you've created is like, it's like it's identity feedback and it's about you. And yes. I think it's important to learn to separate yourself still to some degree from the things that you create so that you're not, so that everything's not a personal attack against you. It's just a, it's something you created that you love that your heart's in, but it's not necessarily an attack on your identity. That makes sense. Absolutely. And, and actually like I would add to that, that, you know, I, here I am sitting in 2015. I started professionally making music in 1998. I've got something like 10 or 11 full length records uh, out and some EPs and I've got two books and I've got other projects in the future. No one work of mine is fully definitive of who I am as an artist, much less as a person. Absolutely. Which is a really, that's when you talk about identity, this is, I'm, I'm coming to be really comfortable with this notion. So even the thing I'm working on right now is not going to be the singularly uh, the, the 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 fullest manifestation of all things Justin McRoberts. Yep, it's one work in this body of work that I am making for the sake of the betterment of the world. And it might not be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. It might not even be as good as I want it to be. But if I can see it in the context of the whole body of work that I'm making, yep, as an artist, uh, and and also see that it, you know see my my artist gift as something I'm offering to the world. That's part of how I get to put some separation between myself and the specific work yeah. that it's like, it's not me and this thing and gosh, this has to work or it doesn't, or I've, you know, I, I, I can't justify the air I breathe. No, right. here's the one work I'm doing in the context of this body of work. And this whole body of work is something I'm offering the world for its betterment and joy. Yeah. I love the chapter that you have on uh, stretching outside of our preferences. <clears throat> and uh, you write, quote, don't allow your preferences to keep you from learning from art outside of those preferences. Yes. Uh, end quote. So why, why do you think that uh, that's so necessary, that we be exposed to things outside of our preferences? Um, the best example I can, I can give is pop music. So for folks who, who are more, uh, I don't know, more nuanced or hipper in yeah. their tastes. What pop music does, especially for folks who, who aren't fans of or don't like pop music or they kind of write the whole thing off. What pop music is, is, is an, is a really specific and intentional attempt on behalf of a writer and an artist to connect with people. That's the yep. whole game in pop music is, can I connect with people? Can I connect with a lot of people? Yep. Well, at the core of art if you're not connecting with people, I would question whether or not you're making art. If it's not, if no one gets it, if no one likes it, if it's not a benefit to anyone's life, if it's just this thing that's you and you make it and you don't care what anyone else, anyone else thinks, if you make it and don't care what anyone else thinks, I'd, I'd say that's more like a really cool way to journal. But it's <laughs> yeah, keep that in your quiet time. That's that's fine, and and you know, but I wouldn't call it art because art's about connection. What yep. pop music does, it's really specifically trying to connect 
with as many people as possible. And so for folks who don't like pop music, even if we don't dig the game, we could really learn a lot about how those women and men go about making those connections happen and draw some, uh, some, some parallels between what they're up to and what we need to learn to do as, you know, quote unquote, hipper or more nuanced, folky artist types. So, you know, no one that I know, (laughs) no one I know doesn't like Tom Petty. Everyone likes Tom Petty. Yeah. Well, part of the, the Tom Petty is the perfect marriage of these two things. I mean, he really is kind of a, you never finish a Tom Petty song and know exactly what it was he was up to. It's like, I'm not totally sure. I'm not totally sure that Tom was entirely sober the entire time he made this record. (laughs) Right. And so I'm not, and because I don't know that like these songs, I don't know what some of these mean, but man, I remember all of them. Yeah. So he's got both things going on. He's kind of got his own thing happening, but he's fully intentional about connecting with his audience. Uh, And so even if you don't like pop music, learning how a pop musician uh, is trying to connect. And the flip side of that, as someone who's all about connection, and this is something I think people who write um, songs for churches can continue to learn, ought to continue to learn. And this is happening to some degree. Because church music is entirely about connection. Yep. Well, once I've earned that right, once I have that connection with people, it's not enough to just kind of, is to just leave it there. And so I, I should pay attention to what more nuanced artists are doing who are stretching their audiences. Yep. And so, you know, Radiohead is always the example everyone gives, but it's a pretty good example that every time they would come out with something, you two actually did this before they did. And now everyone knows that I'm actually 41. Yeah. Uh, it's like, he just said Radiohead and then he followed with you two as these two examples. <laughs> yes, that's me. Um, Every record they put out, their even their tribe had to spend some time with it and figure out if they liked it or not. Yep. Like every single time. I mean, after you know, after uh, OK Computer, you know, they you know they followed it with these songs that were like there, there were no hooks and and it was, and but their tribe had to sit with it and and stretch themselves in order to in order to enter into the music. Well, folks who write really hooky, really accessible music specifically for for congregations can learn a thing or two about how to stretch an audience how to actually ask a little bit more of who you of the people you're writing your your work for by paying attention to these more nuanced kind of hipster artists yeah so we can all learn a little bit even from and especially from the folks whose whose art we don't want or don't like or don't know how to make We'll be back in the room shortly, but first I want to ask a favor. Can you jump over to iTunes when you have a second and leave me a review about how much you love In the Room? Unless you hate it, and then don't worry about a review at all, just email me or something. Your reviews help us increase our visibility on iTunes. And as always, if you like this episode, you can help spread the word by sharing the link on social media. Thanks so much for your support, and now back to the conversation. You're talking obviously about the context of art, but I think that, and this is true of a number of of places, I think in your book, but I think the principle you're talking about really transcends art. And as Christians, I think we've really lost the ability to listen to and learn from and dialogue with those that we differ with. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not just talking like outside the church. I, I just mean like if someone has a different theological conviction than us, the knee jerk reaction is to, is to kind of pull back, uh, to demonize rather than dialogue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see that? Would like, would you, I mean, you're, you're in a lot of Christian settings. Like, would you agree that that's not a a really high skill that we possess? I think it hasn't been, I think in the last few years, uh, maybe the last decade or so we have been specifically as leaders. Yeah. Forced into a corner in which you're either going to be either going to learn to do that or you're going to die. Yeah, like you're either going to learn to listen to the culture around you, uh, specifically the cultures that hate you. Yep. You're either going to learn to listen to those voices and try to see what God is up to over there, or you're going to die. Um, as churches get smaller, as as Christianity becomes further and further pushed out towards the periphery of culture we're going to have to learn to do that. And there, there are small pockets. I mean, what you're doing right now with this podcast is one of the values of this podcast. And I'm sure you know, this is that you're teaching people to listen to what artists are making. So they're going to listen to this and someone might not know who I am, or someone might've listened to, to Carlos's, uh, 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 a podcast and 
they're they're listening. They're paying attention to what he's doing, even if they don't particularly appreciate it or like it or understand it. And you're helping to translate. Say this is why this is important. Yeah. This is why this is vital. Well, so you're you're actually you're you are. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You're imitating this practice of, of of learning how to listen. Yeah, it's sort of the the Michael Frost, who's a he's an author and a missiologist, tell does this great teaching about uh, about Philip uh, and the eunuch, and uh-huh. that like right smack dab in the middle of this gospel journey, the Spirit of the Lord tells Philip to head south on this road, and he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. And the Bible's not entirely clear about how he knows it's a, a eunuch in a yeah, chariot. Yeah, just totally. sort of, that, that just is. Yeah. And what the Spirit says to Philip at that point is, go to this chariot and stay near it. And that's the last thing you hear from the Spirit in the story. Yeah. Philip stands next to that chariot long enough that he hears what's happening inside that chariot. And these two guys have no cultural relationship at all. Right. Almost, almost at all. I mean, even their masculinity is to a certain degree in question because the one is a eunuch and the other is not. Sure. I mean, almost everything is different about these guys culturally. But Philip stands there long enough to listen to see what's happening inside the chariot. And as he stands there long enough, he recognizes that the word of God, specifically book of Isaiah, is active and alive in that chariot. Had he just gone to that chariot with his own agenda or with his own preconceived cultural notions, he wouldn't have heard that God was up to something in that chariot and he would have just moved on. So what you're talking about, the, the practice of listening, like this is what you're doing with the podcasts. It's, it's what a good artist does is it helps, is we help to train and to teach folks uh, how to listen to their world, listen to their own lives and specifically listen to places in their world and their culture that they don't understand, don't appreciate uh, and even don't like. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that you, you've seen in the last decade leaders doing a better job of that. Anybody in particular that comes to mind that you've admired the way that they've tried to practice and model that? Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of, a couple of folks. There's a guy named Ken Hefner, who is the, uh, he's the director of, uh, of student activities uh, uh, at Calvin College okay. uh, in, uh, in Michigan. And for the last decade plus, he, there, there are two things. There's one coming up this year. There's a festival of faith in music and the yep. festival of faith in writing. And uh, Ken invites folks from every possible cultural corner of the world in the, world's, in the writing and in the music world to come and share what they're doing musically. And then he interviews folks. And so he's had the Indigo Girls on campus and he's had Cigarose on campus and okay. he's had Patty Griffin on campus and he's had Josh Ritter on campus and Bob Dylan on campus. And he's with these, with his students teaching his students how to listen and, and how to ask questions in a collegiate setting. Uh, instead of just saying, you know, here's Cigaros, it's, it's, uh, it's a band that they're, they're Icelandic and, right. and, and, and the front man's a homosexual and we're not sure exactly what they're up to or how it exactly you know, adds to or maybe takes away from what we're doing and making with our lives. And so, and leaving it at that, what Ken does is says, well, I'm going to assume sort of the Kuiperian notion that there, there isn't one small, there isn't one square inch in all of human experience over which Christ does not cry mine. It's good. So I'm going to assume that God is up to something, even in the midst of what Sigaros is doing. And my job then as a Christian, this is what Ken's up to, is to teach the kids around me as college students at Calvin College how to ask the right questions to figure out what God is doing. And it's fascinating to watch artists go onto that campus yeah. and be asked questions they've never been asked before and then see things about their own lives that they had not seen. They just hadn't seen it before. They hadn't paid attention because no one had asked them that question in sure. the same way as Philip standing outside that chariot Ask the eunuch, do you understand what it is that you're reading? Yeah. And the eunuch didn't. He had no idea. He was just reading it. So watching Ken Hafner do that uh, on campus for the last 10 plus years, it's a courageous and brilliant redemptive work. Uh, he's, he's one of my favorite people. Okay. Well, let's uh, just briefly, I want to talk a little bit about creativity in the church. Specifically, um, why does so much Christian art suck? Is that, is that, I don't know if that's direct enough or, uh, or Pretty place direct. my hand, but like, but, uh, I mean, that's like, I mean, that's, that there's a, uh, 
Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I think that there's a general there's a general uh, perspective by by many who love art that you know we don't always have in recent decades the the greatest reputation for producing high quality art. So yeah. can you just tell me a little bit about like why why do you think that we've struggled to produce good art? Well, I would say I would say first that the less of it does than was the case before. I totally think, agree with that. And, and some of that has to do with. Um, actually almost all of it has to do with listener preference. Um, that like folks who folks nowadays, if you look through someone's iTunes, uh, playlists, you'll, you know, they'll, they'll have, you know, like a Gunger or a, or a, um, a David Crowder or, um, a, uh, or, you know, some of the, or casting crowns or something. And then mm-hmm. the Not, next, you know what they won't have, Justin, they won't have a Ryan Hughley album because Justin McRoberts <laughs> ignored his demo. <laughs> yeah. Just so poor, you know, that poor guy. I mean, the, <laughs> all of the, all of the, yeah. Uh, the, 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 but right next to a casting crowns or, yep. or whatever yep. it is, they'll, they'll have, uh, you know, an arcade fire and they'll have that. That's the next thing on the track. And so like, because of the way people listen to music that, we're, we have been as a culture forced again into a position in which you kind of have to live up to the expectations people have for general market music. Cause they're going to listen to your stuff right next to someone else's. Yeah. So do the you flip think side, the flip side of that is I, I would say this, that the, there is a, how should I say this? There's a certain expectation that, uh, that an artist in the, in the Christian sphere has to carry that not every artist has the capability of carrying. So not every artist is a pastor or a minister or a worship leader. So we we end up having to comp. I end up having to compromise on the things that I think I could actually do best because I have to play a role that I'm not actually good at playing that I'm not, I'm not a worship leader. I'm not a pastor. I'm not actually a very good upfront minister I'm, I am, I am personally good at some of those things, but as an artist who might not be now, I've got to, I've got to spend so much time working on things that I'm bad at, uh, and to perform these acts that, I, that I'm bad at that now, now my, my work suffers. I, I'm, I'm trying to fill a role as opposed to create art. That part of it, I think it has been that, yeah. that, that it's, it's all got to bend towards a really particular purpose yeah. that if it doesn't as a value system, if it doesn't have a place, as an example, on a Sunday morning, if I can't find use for it as a sermon illustration or as a song that we can sing, then we haven't known exactly what to do with that. Yeah. No. I uh, think so that's, that's a pretty narrow. That's a pretty narrow little, you know, road to have to, or a pretty narrow doorway to try to squeeze it through. Which is why, you know, uh, I guess better. That's a. I don't even want to use the term, but which is why certain artists. Uh, or bands, someone like a Waterdeep, who's never really made music that works really well in that tiny doorway. Yeah, it's why being independent for them in almost every possible way it just works better. It's why the Jars of Clay story arc has worked the way it has, is because their music has more and more become, I think, better music, but less and less uh, usable. Yep, it's not as good a tool in an evangelical Protestant setting. Yeah. So I think those are contributing factors. I don't, I don't think I'm nailing it. Uh, I, I think that's, I think those are aspects of things. No, I think those are, yeah, I think that that, especially the second one, I, I hadn't thought as deeply about that. I think that's a good observation. I know one of the things that Christian art has largely, <clears throat> especially the, at least the sect of it that we would, that we would label as, um, affectionately crappy. Uh, one of the accusations that there's been is that like, there's just too much work to try to kind of cheaply imitate what's popular in secular culture and then Christianize it and make a version of it, uh, for the church. And I think that there's some fair criticism in some of that, but I really appreciated, uh, the way that you talked about in your book, the importance of imitation, not in that way, but, but, in, mm. but imitating those who are better than us. Uh, I think that most artists have this desire to be a hundred percent original, which is largely impossible. Um, and you mentioned how we often move too quickly from inspiration to innovation, from mm-hmm. idea to the actual, you know, and we, we neglect imitation. So can you just share a little bit about what role imitation should have and how do you learn to find your own voice in the midst of that? 
Um, so there's a, there's a chapter in the book about, again, about Tom Petty in, in which I, I suggest people steal from Tom Petty or yeah. some other better artist. And the truth of the matter is in any job, in any vocational role, in any practice of life, um, almost across the board, it's more agreeable. It's more acceptable to, to watch someone else do something and just do it that way. My, my son is learning to hammer nails. Okay. And he's watching me do it because there's a way to do it without hurting yourself. Yeah. And if I was going to, if I was going to become a carpenter, there's just no way I'm going to go and, and just, I'm just going to, I'm going to make up all this stuff on my <laughs> right. own. No, you go and you watch someone else. You apprentice with someone else. Similarly, like being a pastor in a church, you learn to do those things by watching other people. Um, they're simple. They're just skills in any facet of life and particularly in the arts that you're just not going to have. You're not even going to know you need them until you watch someone else do what they're doing. Uh, and, and if I don't, so in other words, watching someone who's really good at something gives me a clue as to not only like that I, I want to be good at that, but also like, okay, I, I'm paying attention to the fact that his songs uh, of the 10 songs, that none of them are in the same tempo on this record. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's something I wouldn't have paid attention to is tempo is like, gosh, I, tend to write songs in the same tempo. So I need to pay attention to that. So listening to the way, to the way someone else makes work, watching the way someone else paints, there are people who are just better at anything you're doing. There's sure. someone who's better than that. And the, 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 the discipleship mentorship model is just, there's no better way to learn a skill than by watching another human being do it. You have to pay attention to the way better people are making what they're making or doing what they're doing. Otherwise, you're just you're fighting battles that you just don't. Even, you save yourself years of mistakes and time by by watching someone else do what they do because yeah. they're great at it. All right. So, what are some songwriters or bands that you're feeling really inspired by right now? I have been. I'm generally traditionally uh, like I still learn a lot by listening to Tom Petty. Okay. Uh, always have. Probably always will. Uh, in, in recent years, Josh Ritter uh, yeah, is he's great. A, He's fantastic. And it's just so infuriating because the guy's like 12 years old. Yeah. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's 27 or something like that. He's just brilliant and getting better. And uh, his stuff really, really, really moves me, lyrically in particular, the way he structures things. Um, and then uh, it, sort of a, in, a, in a different vein, when we're talking about the stuff we listen to that we can't do uh, or we're not as uh, adept in. I've been listening to more uh, kind of thematic ambient stuff okay this is more mood setting music less directional work and so bands like like mogwai or explosions in the sky or um there's a, a band from san francisco that did uh, music for uh the the uh, the Moneyball. uh oh, okay was, was the movie and the band is called this will destroy you and it's stuff that i'm uh, that i've never made i've never done an amb ambient record i've never like written an ambient song but it's the the mood setting the kind of the, the audio landscape thing is really challenging and enlightening and kind of it's opening up bits and pieces of my own kind of psychology i guess yeah. that make me want to make my my own art with a different angle yeah that's great you uh you've given us a great addition to the group of books that exist now on creativity and title pending, but what are some of your personally, your favorite books on creativity that have really inspired or books maybe just that have inspired you the most? Um, yeah. So, uh, the book creativity Inc, uh, by Ed Catmull, uh, Ed Catmull is kind of the guy over at, um, at Pixar okay. and his book creativity Inc is, it's a great, it's a great story about, it's about the Pixar history. It's about their journey and and he uses the story to to talk about the the their principles the way they went about the decisions they made about how they're going to structure their um their culture uh-huh that's a genius 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 book okay um almost anything that Seth Godin writes but in particular Seth Godin's book um the Icarus deception okay in which he postulates the 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 we know we know the Icarus story that he he flew too high and his and his wings melted but what we forget is that when Daedalus, his father, warned him uh, about his flight, he said, don't, don't fly too high, but also don't fly too low. 
and we forget the second part of it. And a yeah. lot of us crash into the waves of low expectations and less effort because we're afraid to fly too high. Yeah. Great, great, great book uh, on risk. Um, uh, and then the, the last, there's a series of books. Uh, if you go to 99u.com, 99u.com, yep. there's a series of books beginning with uh, a book by a guy named Scott Belsky, who's the founder of, uh, of 99u. The one is called Making Ideas Happen. Uh, yeah, which is that. a book exactly about that. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the two follow-up books that, I, that I've read, uh, Manage Your Day-to-Day and Maximize Your Potential, are it's a series of short essays by creators in different facets of life. So folks who are business owners, uh, folks who are musicians or authors, et cetera. And it's kind of this menagerie of different storylines and practices, which was also really inspiring uh, to me. So that, that's a, that's a pretty good list. Yeah, that's a great list. Uh, one of the things I do is, uh, when I'm going to be having a conversation with someone I put out on social media, uh, that I'm going to, who I'm going to be talking to and what it's about did that yesterday, had a couple great questions come in. So, uh, one that came in on Facebook was, uh, what role does collaboration play in your writing? Uh, if any, I mean, oh, that's, that might be a little different for everybody, but, Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned kind of these groups of people that you, take your pieces to from, but what role does uh, collaboration play for you? So for many years, not enough of one. Okay. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot of, uh, I learned a lot of what I learned by trial and error by, um, and that's what I was sharing earlier. Like I had enough, enough ego in the wrong sense of the word early enough to just keep putting work out without seeking the kind of feedback I needed to seek. And so I learned by watching what, whether it's like sales figures or, or, like even watching my own tribe respond or not respond to certain things. And so I can say from experience, uh, collaboration is super key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Save yourself some time yeah. and some pain by getting some folks around you. So nowadays, uh, I, I will come to what I feel like is a finished point and, uh, and ask some really strong worded questions of creatives around me in different fields what they think of what I'm, uh, of what I've done. Okay. I'm still not in a position and most of this geographic. I don't, there aren't a whole lot of songwriters, uh, singer songwriter types who live in the East Bay, East San Francisco Bay area. It's just, I don't live in a, I don't live in a songwriter's town. Okay. And so, uh, my collaboration mostly looks like, uh, getting feedback from, uh, from visual artists or from authors, et cetera, in, in the, in the music world. Uh, in my music world, yeah. getting feedback from folks when I'm closer to completion. I, I have done some collaborative work uh, off and on, but it's a practice that I, as, an, as a songwriter, uh, I just, it was, ne- it was never on my radar and it should have been. Okay. So it's a mistake I'm not making as an author um, where I'm, I'm, I'll start off with a, with a piece and an idea and I'll get the, you know, the, the sort of the roots of it down. And then I will, I'll put stuff in an editor's hand really early okay and say, tell me how bad this sucks. And, <laughs> and how far am I to the level of non suckiness? Yeah. Uh, so that I, then I can start to, you know, actually work at this thing. I'll, 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 that, that I'm actually trying to do right. What do you think is the most powerful form of communication? Written, oral, video, music. Do you have one above others that you feel like this this tends to make the deepest, strongest emotional connection for people? You know, it's in my household I've learned that it's a complete it really does vary from person to person. And okay. that's the cheapest, dumbest answer I know. But my wife is just not moved by music the way I am. She just isn't. She's a visual person and I'm just not moved by visuals the way she is. I'm not affected by them the way she is. Okay. Uh, and so it's a comp- like our experience of art is so, so vitally different. Um, and so like we are apparently in this really um, like video heavy time where yep. a lot of people, and even I'm, I'm, I'm doing it myself. I'm creating this video series that goes along with the title pending book and I get it. But I'm also, I'm not someone who like watches a whole lot of videos and feels like, yes, this is, this is where it's at. This yep. is where the information's coming. I just don't, it doesn't click with me. Whereas like, you know, a nine minute lyricless sonic landscape just gets inside me and I'm 
listening to, you know, just even yesterday, listening to the Sigaros record, um, Voltari. Mm-hmm. And I have, man, I have no idea what homeboy's singing about. I have the first, <laughs> I have the first right. idea. I'm like, man, I don't know what this song's about, but I am inspired. I, yeah. And that's just not my wife. So it just, I, it depends on maybe your culture, your psychology, your chemistry. It depends on what God's up to in your life. Sometimes he doesn't want you to pay attention to what you're seeing. He just wants to get into inside your heart without some lyrics and without some words and yeah. start creating some space. I, you know, so it really, really varies. All right. Well, as you are have moved into being an author more and more, um, what what books do you think writers should read? Um, maybe not even so much about creativity per se, but specific to writing, what have been the most influential books that you would point other writers to? So I, um, I think I mentioned this in the book as well, from a storytelling standpoint, especially in short form, which I think is for the foreseeable future, the, the, like what is working for folks, like folks have their really, really short commutes to work. And if, you know, 20 minute podcasts or hour long podcasts. And that's about what people can take in and they can do like an hour at a time at the yeah. best. And so like short form stories, David Sedaris is still like, I just don't know anyone who is as good as David Sedaris. Yeah. In terms of like being a storyteller and inviting you into environments that you just like are unfamiliar to you and using language that is both challenging uh, without forcing you out of the story. I mean, you, you and I both, you were reading along in a book and, and, you, and brother or sisters using words and phrases and images that you're like, I, I don't even know where I am anymore. And you end up <laughs> yeah. Sidara does such a great job of using phrases and images and even sentence structure that it captures you and slows you down and forces you to pay closer attention so that by, you know, by the time you're into the story, you're there, you're present, you're yeah. seeing it. I don't know anyone as good as he is. Uh, and then I, I, I deeply, deeply, deeply value humor in storytelling yep. and, and, uh, like my, the guy I constantly go back to is Dave Barry. Yeah. He's who's great. A, you know, he's just, he's got a, a whole series of books on different, you know, different aspects of life and culture. And he's a great humorist and, but he never loses the story with a joke. Like yep. the joke, the joke always serves the story even though it's, you know, you remember the jokes, but you really remember the story because the jokes are so funny. Yeah. Uh, those two guys. Then the last the one I would add to that is, in terms of spiritual writing, uh, Thomas Merton still gets me. Uh, like as a, as a, someone who talks about the inner life and prayer. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Merton still just knocks me out. Have you read, uh, this is making me sound super unspiritual after you dropped the Thomas Merton bomb, but have you read, uh, have you read Stephen King's book on writing? I just, I literally just two nights ago started the book. That book is lights out, man. I think that, I, I think it's so good. And I, I'm so, I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself. Cause like for, for like when I started the, the, the process of writing title pending and there was a short list of books about creativity and folks were like, do you know the Stephen King thing? And I was like, no. And I, I hadn't read a Stephen King novel since like before. And it's like the beginning of college like yeah. years ago. And like, like I said, two or three nights ago, I picked this thing up and my gosh, I mean, just even the fact that he's got those three, four words and then they're yeah. all, I mean, they're deeply insightful and they're super funny. Yeah. And, and yeah, man, I don't I, even love him as a novelist. You know, like I, I, I've not read a ton of his novels that I really like, right. but that book, uh, I just thought it was exceptional. I loved reading the memoir style in the first half and then his, you know, kind of practical tips on the back end. It's just a really great book. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into it and, and to do so without a little bit of agenda. Like I, like I don't have anything I need to do with it. So I think I'll just be able to enjoy it. Well, good. Well, man, I, I think I was thinking about your book today. I read it in almost one sitting yesterday. And uh, I think that uh, one of my favorite things about it and that I really want to commend to people is I really think your book has a bit of a prophetic edge to it in that I think that both creatives and non-creatives will really be stretched by it because you've done a great job. I I don't think that um, you weren't obvious uh, about it, but I think that anyone that reads uh, with a discerning filter is going to see that whether or not I'm producing 
uh, obvious art. There are so many corollaries that can be drawn between the way that you're talking about creativity and art and the way that I think God has knit us up to grow spiritually. And so I think regardless of whether or not someone's a creative or they don't view themselves and they they don't want to create anything, I think that uh, I bought four copies yesterday, just so you know. And uh, so I've got some friends I'm going to give them away to. And it's just, it's, it's great, man. You're, you're, it's a, it's a gift. I laughed out loud smoking a cigar yesterday at the club (laughs) and uh, it's phenomenal. I really like it. Oh man, I appreciate that. That's super generous. I appreciate that. That's great. Thanks so much for coming on. And I just want to go on record as saying, I forgive you for ignoring my demo. (laughs) (laughs) I only half believe you, man. (laughs) All right, man. Well, thank you very much. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. Justin is such a great example of what we're trying to accomplish within the room. I want to learn from as many people possible, and Justin is cut from that same cloth. So check out his new book, uh, listen to his music, and visit his website, justmcroberts.com. Don't forget to stop by my blog, ryanhugley.com, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at ryanhugley, that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 11 in my conversation with Scotty Smith. We spent an entire hour talking about prayer, and I think you're going to find it super encouraging. Until then, it's It's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.